Hola. You're listening to another episode of Life in Paradise podcast with me, your host, Brandon Harper. Today is Sunday, August 7th, 2020. It's approximately 4 o'clock in the afternoon. All I wish, I wish I had something in the background going beep, 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 The old telegraph sound. My, how times have changed. But you didn't come here to hear me talk about changing times. Well, maybe you did. I don't know. We've got a pretty interesting show for today. Took the last couple of weeks off. I was out of town. I'll go into details on what I did. For those of you who don't know, I'm just a regular dude with a regular job and lots and lots of opinions. So I come here about once every couple weeks or sometimes once a week to get them off my chest. Some you'll agree with and others you won't, and I'm okay with that. Because I think the world would be a better place if we could disagree without being disagreeable. I started this podcast a few years back when I was living in Nicaragua, and it really was about living in paradise. And now, because I'm too lazy to change it, it's still under the same name. It's still under, like, travel and adventure. And I need to do something about that, but I'm just too darn lazy. So now it's mainly about politics, economics, my opinions, a little bit of dog-related training and stories. It's basically like a, a one-way trip into my little brain. And whether you love me or hate me, I don't really care, as long as you just keep listening. And if there's one thing you'll know about me, it's that I don't do pre-recorded intros. So, sit back, relax, and let me control the air conditioner for about the next 30 to 45 minutes. It's official. I've got an announcement to make. Some of you already knew this. Some of you didn't know. But what I'm here to tell you is that we are officially in a recession. For those of you who may not know what a recession is, now's a good time to learn. Because if you listen to the mainstream media and the White House and all the talking heads that are on CNN and Fox News and all these people who get paid to sell advertisements and not deliver the news, you might be really confused as to what a recession actually is. Have no fear. I'm here to explain it for you. Up until literally two weeks ago, a recession was defined as two consecutive quarters with negative GDP growth. Okay, so what that means is, first of all, let's talk about what what is GDP. GDP stands for Gross Domestic Product. And Gross Domestic Product is nothing more than adding up all of the goods that were sold in the U.S. and all of the services that were sold within the U.S. And those two numbers equals Gross Domestic Product. For simplicity, you can think of it as all the money that was spent in the U.S. Now, you're going to say, but there's some things that don't fall in those categories. Yeah, okay, I get it. But we have to draw the line somewhere. So, When we talk about GDP, we measure it in terms of growth in percentages. So 
if we have $100 one year in, in our GDP, and I'm using this number for easy math, if we had a hundred, if our GDP was $100 one year, and the next year was $102, then we can say that our GDP grew by 2%. And the healthy rate is somewhere between 2, 3, 4, 5%. Anything more than that, and you start getting inflation. Anything less than that, and you start getting people laid off, losing jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And in 2021, the GDP grew at 6.9%. For all intents and purposes, we'll call it 7%. And so you might say, well, how did it grow so fast? We were coming out of COVID. How were, there was people spending money? Oh, yeah. There was people spending lots of money because they were given free money throughout the year. And they spent it all. So that spending led to a big growth in gross domestic product. And so now we're, we're paying the price for that. And I'm not going to go too far into the weeds on that. But let's just remember that, that a recession is a negative growth in GDP. So let's go back to our $100, our $100 example. So let's say we have $100 one year. And the next year we have $98. Well, that's a 2% decrease in GDP growth. And if we do that twice in a row, two quarters, which is three months, if we do that two quarters in a row, then that's considered a recession. Well, until recently, whenever, <laughs> and it makes me laugh because these people forget that there are people out there who understand this. And so here's what they did. The White House and all their infinite wisdom came out and said, well, yeah, we, we did have another quarter of GDP shrinkage, but technically it's not a recession because a lot of people haven't gotten laid off or fired yet, and uh, money's still moving hands, so technically it's not, it's not a recession. And, and why do they want to do that? Why do they want to change the definition? Well, because it looks bad. It looks bad if the, the party who's in office is in office during a recession. Because everyone is fearful of that word, mainly because it invokes emotions. It makes people feel a certain way. If you hear that we're in a recession, you think, oh my God, we're in a recession. And a lot of people don't really know what recession means. But they, knew, they do know that bad things happen during a recession. And it's mainly people not being able to meet their financial obligations. Uh, and part of two reasons, because they lose their job or because the, the assets that they have have gone down in value. So let's just say you went out and took a, a home equity loan. You borrowed money based on the equity you have in your house. And then your job gets deleted or whatever. You get, you get laid off because of a slow in the economy. And now you can't pay for the home equity loan in that house. And so then what happens? Well, the bank now assumes the equity in your house. And so you don't own as much of your house as you used to. And so this just turns into a vicious cycle, or, or it can, based on how you play your cards. And so that's why people are scared of the word recession. Because when you think of the word recession, you think of bad economic times, things going down in value, and people losing their jobs, because that's what happens. And I think, like, in addition to the White House changing their definition, I think there was like five or six other websites who <laughs> literally altered the definition of recession. And it's funny to me, because they're only pulling the wool over the eyes of people who don't actually understand the way things work. And that is a sad, sad state, in my opinion. It's sad to think of them sitting around strategizing about how they can change the semantics of a definition so that the commoners, the, the, the common folk, the paupers, don't really know what's really happening. 
And and that is why I think we're electing the wrong people. And their new definition was something vague and subjective about like, well, you know, it, it's really more to do with job loss and security and equality, you know, things that you can't really measure. That yeah, that's that's how we're gonna define it from now on. We're gonna just say like if it if it feels bad, then yeah, we'll call the recession. And what's even funnier is that the word recession was brought about after the Great Depression. And the word Great Depression was brought about after the word panic. That's right. In the late eighteen hundreds, they went through what's called a panic. And then they said, Well, you know what, that that term is kind of it's kind of scary. And we don't want the common folk to, to freak out. So we're going to start calling it a depression. And then after the depression, they decided to start calling it a two-quarter downturn in economic growth. It's a minimum, minimum of two quarters, mind you. Then they decide they're going to call it a recession. Kinder, softer, gentler term. And so my theory is that after we get through this period that we're just now starting to enter... There's a lot of people who think like, oh, we've, we've hit bottom. We're getting ready to rebound. My theory is that I disagree with that. I think we are seeing a little short-term rally in the markets. I think things are still moving quite quickly. And I think we're going to see more pain to come. And that, that's an economic term. Pain is not, you know, it's not literal. It's just pain means economic downturn. And so I think that this will be called a, a reset or, or something like that. I've always used the term reset. Uh, to describe what what I think the next 10 years will hold, but, but we'll see. I do think that the, some other word will come about other than recession. Um, I, think, I think a transition, maybe, I think I heard them call that the, the whatever Jean-Jean St-Pierre, the White House spokes, spokesperson who technically knows nothing. I, and for the record, I've never seen someone represent the United States who knows less than this individual. Either way, I think she flipped through her book ferociously and decided to call it a, a transition period that we are currently going through right now at this moment. And that is all I'm going to speak on that, which is literally how she talks. You don't believe me, do you? You're saying, Brandon, you're just exaggerating because you're, you're a racist, sexist, homophobe, everything phobe. Just listen. Here you go. Take a listen to this brilliant piece of work who's representing our country. It can barely assemble a sentence. This Twitter account posted the other day, you want to bring down inflation, let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. Mm-hmm. How does raising taxes on corporations reduce inflation? Um, so, are you talking about a specific tweet? He tweeted, you want to bring down inflation, let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. How does raising taxes on corporations reduce inflation? Look, you know, we have talked about um, we have talked about this this past year uh, about um, making sure that the wealthiest among us are paying their fair share, um, and that is important to do, and uh, that is something that uh, you know the president has been you know working on uh, every day when we talk about inflation and lowering costs, and so it's very important uh, that uh, you know as we're seeing costs rise. Uh, as keep in mind, the question was. How does making corporations pay more taxes help with inflation? That was the question. 
That was the question. We're talking about how to, you know, uh, you know, build a, a, a America that's safe, that's equal for everyone and doesn't leave everyone behind. That is an important part uh, of that as well. How does paying more in taxes help inflation? How does raising taxes on corporations lower the cost of gas, the cost of a used car, the cost of food for everyday Americans? So, look, I think we encourage those who have done very well right, especially those who care about climate change uh, to support a fair ta tax code that doesn't change, that doesn't charge manufacturers, workers, cops, builders. A she's literally reading. She's, she's reading from a book and she's getting the words wrong. Higher percentage of their earnings that the most fortunate people in our nation and not let this, this, that stand in the way of reducing energy costs and fighting this ex existential problem, if you think about that as an example, and to support basic collective bargaining rights as well, right? That's also important. But look, it is, you know, by not, if, without having a fair tax code, which is what I'm talking about, then all, every, like manufacturing workers, cops, you know, it's not fair for them to have to pay higher taxes than the folks that who are who are who are not paying taxes at all she's literally just reading just reading words that, that and doesn't know what she's saying and and i have a problem with putting people in this position who don't know what they're talking about because their job is to communicate to the press what the white house is doing and she cannot because she doesn't understand it okay you get the idea these people are changing the definition to prevent the people from worrying and panicking. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. You know, every now and then I think, hey, maybe these Democrats have it right. Maybe the general public is too stupid to make their own decisions. Maybe that they don't need to make decisions and they need everyone to make decisions for them. And then the libertarian in me goes, no, even stupid people should be able to make their own decisions. And the Democrat administration, who's currently in the White House, doesn't feel that way. They feel that the common folk are too stupid to make decisions. So they need to make decisions for them. You see this time and time again. You've seen it with the mask. You've seen it with the vaccine. You see it with all these rules. It's nonstop, constant regulations. You have to do this. You must do this. You cannot do that. And that's bullshit. This is the land of the free. Stop it with all the regulations. Let us live our life. Okay, I'm, I'm feeling the rant. I'm feeling it. I'm going to settle back, settle down a little bit. I'm going to dial it back. Just keep in mind that this is a tactic. This is something they do intentionally. This is not an accident. This is something that is, is strategized and thought through and planned out. They probably paid some big consulting company to tell them, Hey, um, you know, we really shouldn't call it a recession. It'll it'll make people worried and, and maybe it'll contribute to what to what's happening. And, you know, we just these people just aren't qualified to, to do that kind of thing. So we're not going to actually call it a recession yet. We're going to we're going to just wait a while and just just see how things go. But all of the economists that I listen to, all of the guys who study global and macroeconomics, they say we are clearly in a recession this is, no, this is no different than the other recessions of the past. We've seen two consecutive quarters of GDP shrinkage. Therefore, our economy is reciting. It's going down. It's, it's recessing. Uh, reciting is probably not the right root word. You know, I just spoke from the brain there. But it's receding. This is a recession. 
our, our economy goes in cycles because of the way that we, we create fake money and we pump it out there. So we have booms and busts and booms and busts. And we can hope that it all equals out to a net positive. But as they used to say in football, don't get caught with your pants down. All right, that's enough. You understand what recession is? You understand that we are officially in one. Where it goes from here, nobody knows. I think it's going to keep going down for a while, but I hope I'm wrong. I really do. I don't, I don't like recessions. They're not fun. No one has any money. People lose their jobs. You can't buy things. So let's just cross our fingers that we're not going to continue on this path. All right, for my next trick, I'm going to talk about the what I think is a crazy phenomenon, and we're all just okay with it. And the reason for that is because we're willing to give up privacy for convenience. And that's really all technology is. And this is what I'm talking about. It's called the CAPTCHA. And I know you've been on websites before where you like you enter your name and you enter your password and you push enter or you click submit. And it's like, oh, click all the pictures with a bicycle. And you click all the pictures of a bicycle and you hit submit. And it's like... Now click all the pictures of stoplights. And so you're like, hmm, well, that's kind of got the corner of the stoplight. I don't know if I'm supposed to pick it or not. And, and meanwhile, the, the value, your time is just going away. It's just getting lost into the universe, and you'll never get it back. Those 10 seconds that you do, that you spend doing this, are gone, and you'll never get them back. And sometimes, I'm not joking, I've gone through like 15 of those stupid things, and it makes me so mad because there's no alternative. There's nothing else you can do. What you're doing in that situation, and those label the motorcycles, c- click on all the bridges. What you're doing is you're helping artificial intelligence learn. So in order for computers to recognize images, they need someone to tell it if it's right or if it's wrong. And instead of having some guy that they're having to pay to sit there to click, okay, that's a picture of a bridge, that's a picture of a sidewalk, that's a picture of a bicycle, that's a picture of a fire truck, that's a picture of a police car, they're making us do it little by little by little. And so we're, we're labeling all these images as to what they are, and then the artificial intelligence is learning from that. And I wish that companies would publish it, you know, hey, for an extra one cent or two cents or whatever, because companies are getting paid for this. The way that it works is whoever's developing the artificial intelligence goes to the bank and they say, hey, if you're on a CAPTCHA on your website, we'll pay you a nickel every time someone goes through one of the little puzzles. And so the bank says, sure, it doesn't cost me any money. They put it on their website. The, the monkey on the other end is clicking basketball, baseball, football, baseball glove, and the bank's getting the nickel. So what I would like to see was it would be for the business to say, hey, we're not going to do CAPTCHA. Instead, give us a nickel. I'd say, okay. And you can have the choice. Either you give them the nickel or you do the CAPTCHA or you go find a different business who doesn't have either one. You know, this, this technology thing is getting to a point right now where it's forcing us by not always forcing us in like in a literal sense, but... If you do not comply, if you don't follow these guidelines, you lose access to the convenience that you basically need to live. And this is why Facebook can put whatever they want to in their, in their fine print. And we don't even read it. You just click approve, approve, scroll to the bottom, approve, approve. And they know that we do that. And so they use it to their advantage. 
And so what, what fixes this? How will we ever get away from this? You know the answer. Blockchain technology. Decentralized servers. Things that, you know, there's not going to be one person that stands to gain from something like a CAPTCHA because it'll all be split up amongst multiple computers in different locations, and there's not one person who's benefiting from us, the monkeys, sitting there clicking the pictures. You know, my theory is that the pendulum always swings one way, and it gets as high as it can possibly get, and it always goes back the other way. And so we're realizing all the gains from this brilliant technology that makes your life easy. Remember when the iPhone first came out, or the, the thumbprint, and there was the people saying, man, I ain't going to stick my damn thumb on that. I ain't getting my thumbprint. And now we just hold it up in our face as fast as we possibly can because we don't have to type in the little four-digit passcode. And so we're becoming programmed to just give this stuff away. And I think eventually people will say, we've had enough. Whenever there's an alternative, whenever there's another way to do it, we will say, we're not participating in that. We're going to participate in this. And the, the thing that I see that, that decentralizes the power from people like Facebook is the blockchain technology. And if you've listened to one of my shows, you've heard me talk about it before. So I'm not going to go into all the details, but just keep in mind that is something that the blockchain will fix. It's going to offer permanency to the Internet. It's going to offer privacy. And most of all, it will offer efficiency. For, uh, for all of you people who are listening are not my family or close friends, you might not know this, but my degree from Texas A&M whoop, is agricultural economics. And, and just bear with me. I'm going somewhere here. I'm going somewhere. And so what that is is studying the economics of agriculture, learning how farms work and how the money works in feedlots and, and industrial settings. And basically you learn the business side of farming, the, the economic side. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was... Um, it was interesting to me. Even even at a young age, I really loved my upper-level classes because I was always interested in agriculture. I raised a pig. I raised a steer. And the reason that I did, or the reason that I got involved, because is because I remember seeing that the, the winning steer from the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo sold for like, I don't know, $400,000 or $500,000 when I was a, a sophomore in high school. And I thought, whoa, 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 time out, bruh. Time out. You mean I can raise a, a steer and sell it for like 500 gigawatts? I got to figure this out. So that is what got me into agricultural economics. And that's why I went to A&M and I studied it and I got to graduation. And they're like, oh, congratulations. We'll move you to Chicago and put you in a suit and tie and pay you a little bit of money. And you can be a commodities trader. And I was like, oh, no, you won't. I'm going to go build houses. All that to say this, last week, Kale, my business partner and I, got to go out and experience a program hosted by the Texas Beef Council called Pasture to Plate. And it was four days of them whining and dining us, which I, we're, we're lucky we got to go. It was some of the top chefs in the state of Texas were there. And the Texas Beef Council, their purpose is to promote beef within the state to show people that it's healthy, show people that it's sustainable, show people that it can be profitable, show people that it's efficient. And so we got to tag along for this deal and experience it. And we spent four days just knee-deep in the beef industry. And I learned so much 
in these four days that I, if you would have told me beforehand, I would have thought there's no way I'll learn that much. I already know a lot. I've had a degree in agricultural economics. But it's different when you're older and you go back and you got more history under your belt and you got more brains than what you had when you were 22. And, man, I was like a kid in a candy store. I just soaked it all up. So without reliving the entire experience, I'm going to go through just a few things that I thought would be interesting to share on here. And I understand that there's opposing viewpoints to everything. I understand that some of the things I'm going to say, you might say, yeah, but, yeah, 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 but, yeah, but. And that's okay. You can have your opinion. I can have mine. And that's, I'm fine with that. Just keep in mind, the burden of proof is on you. And that's just a fancy way of saying, here's my point of view. If you think that's false or incorrect, show me with statistics or data as to why you think it's wrong. And then we'll just leave that at that. So the first thing in my notes here was um, to talk about all of the, the anti-marketing campaigns that you see. And if you think about someone who raises chicken for a living or someone who raises pigs, you know, they, they have interest in beef not selling as much. And I'm not sitting here blaming anyone or saying that the industry's dirty, but there's always someone who benefits from someone else not doing well. If I could go out there and convince everyone that Budweiser was poison, maybe they'd come drink my beer and my sales would go up. So I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just saying that things like this happen. So within the beef industry, there's been a bunch of anti-marketing campaigns to say things that that insinuate, well, we, we have this, and it's free of that. Without you knowing what that is, just the notion that hearing is something doesn't have it, you assume that it's bad. Take, for example, the whole grass-fed beef. Now, you've seen the label, grass-fed, on, on meat everywhere, and you think to yourself, wow, that... It must be better. It's more expensive. Or it must be healthier. It's more expensive. Well, the, the dirty secret about grass-fed beef is that most beef is not really grass-fed. And you're thinking, well, how can they say it's grass-fed if it's not really grass-fed? Well, here's how. Because in like four or five years ago, the FDA and the USDA both agreed that they're not going to regulate the term grass-fed. It got too cloudy. It was too gray. There's no way to prove it. And so they said, you know what? You put grass-fed wherever you want to. We don't care. It doesn't matter to us. Because a typical cow is raised on grass until a certain point in time. Then he goes to what's called a feedlot, where they feed him grain and corn and delicious things that make him fat and yummy. So technically, all cows are grass-fed. And because of this, they could never agree on how to market a cow that was fed grass from birth to death. They can't say he's grass-fed because the other guy can say the same thing. So then they try to start saying, well, it's grass-finished. Well, okay, technically hay is grass, and we feed non-grass-fed cows hay at the feedlot. So technically, they're also grass-fed. So you can see it just got super cloudy. And as of right now, you can put a grass-fed label on anything. It doesn't matter if it's been eating corn its whole life. You can say it's grass-fed. But the telltale sign is that the fat will be yellow, almost green in some instances. So if you decide you want to eat grass-fed beef because you've been told it's healthier, if the fat around the outside and the inside is not yellowish, uh, technically 
you won't see much fat, much marbling in the meat because grass is, doesn't have enough energy for them to store fat, right? Fat comes from excess energy being consumed and stored somewhere. And so the grass that they eat doesn't have enough of that for them to, to create fat. So the little fat that they have will be yellow and it will taste terrible. I don't like this flavor of grass-fed beef. I think I've tried it like twice in my life. And I thought, nope, I'm going to stick with the corn-fed because it's way more deliciouser. So that's, that's number one bullshit, guy. That's the first part of bullshit. The number two is hormone-free. You see that all the time. Hormone and antibiotic-free. Well, that's also BS. Because all it takes is for an animal to not be given hormones seven days before it's slaughtered to be considered hormone-free. So people put this all over everything because you would assume, well, if it doesn't, if it doesn't have hormones, it, it must be good. Hormones must be bad. Hormones are nothing more than what your body already produces. So cattle ranchers, um, I think in the late 80s, figured out that, hey, we can implant a little pill in this cow's ear that releases more hormones than it normally produces, and it makes it want to eat a lot more. And it makes the efficiency, it makes the gains a lot higher. So we can produce a, a bigger, fatter, tastier cow with 15% less grain. Well, what does that mean? It means less cost to the consumer. So now that delicious steak that used to cost a dollar only costs 85 cents. It's better for the consumer. And so there's people out there saying, yeah, but you don't know that this stuff don't stay in the meat forever. Yeah, actually I do. There's all kinds of scientific tests that go down. And they've figured out that if you stop giving the hormones to the cows seven days before they're slaughtered, there's virtually zero presence in the meat. How do I know this? Because they do tests. They figure it out. They're people way smarter than me that walk around in lab coats. Just listen to this comparison. One birth control pill. I'm going to let you guess, okay? One birth control pill has the same amount of hormones in it as X servings of beef that's been given hormones but stopped seven days before slaughter. How many servings do you think that is? How many servings? Just take a guess, all right? What do you say, 300, 500, 50, 75? Nope, you're way off. 18,000. 18,000 three-ounce servings to equal the amount of hormones and one birth control pill. Now, in my opinion, it's worth it. It's worth it to get that cheap, delicious, marbled beef if I get the same amount of hormones after 18,000 servings as one birth control pill. Here's another one that's total BS. You see um, cured meats like bacon and summer sausage and link sausage that says nitrite-free or nitrate-free. And that's not true. Nitrites are something that are added to meat to keep it from spoiling when you cure it at a low temperature. And so they've created um, this stuff called pink salt, sodium nitrite. And it's used in sausage making. That's what gives sausage like the pink color. I'm not talking about breakfast sausage. I'm talking about the link sausage that you cook on the grill. And what they figured out was they can use something called celery powder instead of sodium nitrite. And celery powder is nothing more and I may, I may have this a little bit off, but I'm going to go from memory here. Then they grow celery 
in nitrites, in a, in a box of nitrites, the, the same chemical that we use to, to cure meat, well, the celery grows from that, and all the nitrites go into the celery. Then they take the celery, and they dry it out, and they grind it up into powder. So it's just got the exact same things in it. But if you look on the label for, for, for one of these products, it says no nitrites or nitrate-free. It'll say like celery powder used, used for curing. Because if you don't cure the meat, you can get botulism. When those, those meats are prepared at a low temperature, that makes it ideal for botulism to grow. So we have to have something to inhibit that growth. Another thing that people think is that, you know, cows are all stressed out and it's just not, they live in a little confined space, which is true about the veal industry. I don't eat veal because I don't approve of the way that they raise those cows. However, we went and toured uh, a cow-calf operation, which is a farm where the cows are born and raised up to a certain point. Then they're sent to what's called a feedlot. And the feedlot, they put them in a pen there's probably 50 to 100 cows or steer or bulls in a pen. And they just have, they can eat as much as they want to. They're not calling them over and forcing feed down their mouth like they do with the geese who make foie gras. They just say, hey, bro, here's a buffet. Eat whatever you want to. So the cows go eat for a while and they go back and sleep. And they lay out and they come back and they eat some more. And during this process, they just get fatter and fatter and tastier. And they can live in these feedlots for anywhere from two or three months to two or three years, depending on the age at which they get sent. And so I had never been to a feedlot before, and I was expecting to see cows that were kind of stressed out and crammed up and unhappy, but I didn't. I saw the opposite. I saw cows that were in a pen, so they didn't have the ability to roam freely. But they, so they were in a pen, but, you know, they, they had the ability to walk around and get water and hang out with their friends and look, you know, look all around. It wasn't like they're just confined to a little space where they can't move. But I, I can tell when an animal is stressed. And these guys were fine. They're all, they're all exhibiting normal behavior that you would see cows in a pasture. And so us as humans, we think about like, man, that would suck to live in a little pen. Yeah, but we're humans. We don't think like cows do. Maybe cows are excited that they get to live in a pen where they have just a free buffet that just lets you eat all you want. And you got water over here. You don't have to walk that far. Maybe they don't like walking. Maybe, maybe they don't like to be free. Now, there's people out there who say, well, we've done studies and we can tell based on their behavior that they do better. Well, maybe so. But that's, that's got to be your opinion. That's not, there's not, that's not factual. Behavior is subjective. To, to your opinion. And what I saw, and in my opinion, were cows that were happy, that had plenty of food, had plenty of water, and they were just chilling before they went to the slaughterhouse. And here's how I know that I'm right. Because stressed cows cost farmers money. If a cow is stressed, first of all, it won't eat. It won't be gaining weight. And you get paid by the pound when you send your cow to slaughter. Another thing that can happen is if a traumatic event happens in the cow's life or a series of events, it can cause the cow to have a certain color of meat that looks unappetizing. And so they, every now and then you see these. I asked them what percentage of, they said maybe like, you know, two to 3%. It's called a dark cutter. And the meat is a very, very, very dark, dark red. And so because we have these expectations as consumers and we see all this bright red, this rich blood colored meat, 
And then you see a piece of like dark, dark burgundy meat. You wouldn't eat it or you would think it's rotten. So they can't do much with that. It gets ground up and sold to cafeterias of, you know, schools and hospitals and, and institutions. But they can fetch a premium if they sell the ribeyes, you know, to HEB. So all that just to say that there's, a, there's an added benefit for having animals that live in a stress-free environment. They eat more. They produce more. Well, reproduce more, I should say. And the meat's tastier. So because of that, the economic incentive alone is enough for these guys to take good care of their cows. This is how they make a living. They want those cows to fetch them the most money as possible. And so because of that, they take care of them. And they, they do whatever it takes for the cow to be happy. Because a happy cow makes a happy farmer. And the last thing that I learned about, well, not the last thing, but the, the last thing I'm going to talk about is something that was very, very interesting to me. And one of the professors there at West Texas A&M, whose name is Dr. Ty Lawrence, has been working on a project for like the last 15 or 20 years. And he's been successful. And it was all over the news. It got media coverage, national media. And what he started doing was cloning cows based on their meat quality. So over time, up until this guy came on the scene, we would look at a cow, we would look at a bull, and we would say, man, that muscle structure looks good. That muscle structure looks good. Let's have them have babies, and we'll slaughter them and eat the meat, and we'll see what it looks like. And then they'll make their decision on the next one based on that. Well, what this guy did was he took a, a meat a tissue sample after a cow had been slaughtered, and he found what he wanted the most. And so without going into a lot of details, there's a bunch of different factors when you're grading meat for quality. It's way more complicated than you can ever think of. But there's two things that they really want. They want fat within the muscles, and they want no fat around the outside of the muscles because that fat outside is fat that you have to pay for as a processor, as a consumer, and you can't do anything with it. You have to trim it off and it goes to waste. So people don't want that fat. They want the, the meat with the fat going through the inside of it. So in his experiment, they slaughtered a cow. He, took, he found one that had all the qualities that he wanted. He took that meat tissue sample and they created more just like it. And they bred those with each other. They bred those with each other. And then they started producing cows with a phenomenal grade of meat without hardly any fat on the outside called back fat. And it's this beautiful program. And a lot of the industry rejected it. They turned their nose up at it. said, you're, you're trying to play God. We don't like that. We're, you know, we're traditionalists. And to me, that is, that is something that causes you to get left behind because it's not. You're not playing God. You're just saying, like, we've been selecting these cows based on what we think would be the best meat for generations. But now we have science to help us out. And didn't we all agree to just trust the science? So I'm all for it. If you can produce more meat at a better price, higher quality, sign me up. Here's another little known fact. We're restricted based on the number of animals that can be inspected per day to how many we can slaughter. So I think the number is 390 per hour or something like that. I could have that off, but... The USDA has an inspector at every slaughterhouse. And what he's doing is looking at the process, making sure things are clean, making sure that the, the meat gets graded properly and that he assigns it a, a grade. You've seen prime, choice, 
select. You've seen that on your meat packages. Well, he has to grade every single carcass that comes by. And because of that, they say, okay, we cannot produce more than this much per day per packing house because that's all we can inspect. So the solution to that, to get more quantity of meat out, is to have a heavier animal. Because remember, they all get paid by the pound. So if they can create a heavier animal, then, then everything becomes more efficient. And over the last, I don't know, 30 or 40 years, on average, the carcass weight has gotten five pounds heavier. And so every year they're getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And you know what? I'm all for this. This is, this is taking science and using it to our advantage to provide the consumer a better experience for less money. And that's it. That's all there is to it. He also did say that he suspects in China they're doing this with humans. Now, obviously not for meat purposes, but he thinks they're cloning humans in China. I don't know. I've always said it'd make a crazy book. Uh, the Chinese, they don't care. They'll try anything. So wouldn't surprise me. Would not surprise me one bit. So yeah, that's the that's the brief wrap up of the uh, of the takeaways that I got from from meat school. I met a great group of people. I got a little network now. I got people who know way more about the food industry and cooking than I do. So it's nice to have people around you who have the answers to your questions. Because in my little circle, in my teeny tiny little bubble, I'm the guy that knows about the barbecue. So anytime somebody has questions about barbecue, whatever, they come to me, which is fine. I love to help people. But there's another bubble. There's, there's a bubble that's bigger, that has people that know more. And to me, that recognizing that, recognizing that, yeah, you think you know a lot, but there's someone out there who, who you don't really know much in comparison to, once you can accept that and identify it, then that's how you grow. That's how you get to know more and understand more. Because if you're too prideful to admit that someone out there might know more than you, then you're doomed. You're stuck. You won't, you won't grow. And whatever it is we're talking about, and I'm going to circle back to this in a second uh, in relation to dogs because I've got an interesting story and it kind of all tied together for me. And I've got something now that is a perfect time for me to explain that I've kind of been wanting to explain for a while. Um, and because of the beef example, it's kind of, kind of going to bring it all, all into one basket. And this term is called hedging. You may or may not have heard it, but hedging is a, a term you've heard of hedge funds. Maybe these are, these are investment funds that help you offset your risk. Um, yeah, I'm not going to go into all that. But so the term hedging is what a lot of people are doing right now in the stock market. And so that when things go down, they don't lose. Now, when things go up, they also don't win much. So it's a way to diversify your risk to keep her from losing. Now, at the same time, you're not going to win, but you're not going to lose. Kind of just kind of run along the middle and you make sure you don't lose. And so what's happening in the beef industry right now is that because of the severe drought, everyone is taking their cows to slaughter. So what you're going to see is a huge influx of cows that come into the market. And we know from Econ 101 that when you increase the supply of something without changing the demand, what happens? The price goes down. Right. Exactly. So what's going to happen shortly because all these farmers are taking their cows to market because they say, man, hay's gone through the roof. I can't even find hay. There's no water for my cows. There was a, a couple thousand of them that died a few months ago up in Kansas. And so they said, you know what? Just screw it. We're going we're gonna to sell them all. We're going to take the cash, and we're just going to wait. 
And once things change a little bit, then maybe we'll get back into the cattle business. Another interesting point is that 80% of all the cows, no, 90, sorry, 90% of all the cows consumed in the U.S. come from small family farms that have been around for generations. So that's, a, that's an interesting thing. It's one of the last few industries that has the mom and pops that are actually contributing. Okay, so go back to the example. Everyone goes and sells their cows. They take the money, they sell in the cash, and they wait. So all the cows get sold in the market. There's a huge supply. The price goes down. Well, remember, cows don't get produced in one day. It takes two to three years for a cow to go from birth to slaughterhouse. And so what's going to happen is all these cows get pushed into slaughter, and then there's no cows being born. There's no babies being made. Uh, There will be some, undoubtedly, but it won't be a lot. It'll be less than what the market's demanding. So now remember... If you have a certain level of demand and you decrease the supply, what happens? Yes, the price goes up. So hedging is protecting yourself against price fluctuations one way or the other, right? Remember, for every transaction, there's a buyer and there's a seller. And each seller and buyer has an interest to protect their transaction from going the opposite direction of what they need. So In our case, we buy lots of brisket. Now, lots is kind of relative, right? In comparison to a regular restaurant, we buy a lot of beef. So knowing this, I'm going to figure out how to hedge the price of brisket. And if you can do this, you end up with a competitive advantage over your competition. Because if they're just buying beef at the market prices, yep, when it goes down, they're going to pay less. But when it goes up, they're going to have to pay more. So... I've kind of got a little scheme that I'm working on, and I'm, I'm probably going to buy out a year or a year and a half worth of briskets. Now, you don't have to actually buy the briskets to make this thing work. What I can do is I can go out and I can buy what's called futures. Well, I'm not going to go into that. Let's just say that I can go buy, think of it like a stock. I can go buy a stock that's directly correlated to the price of beef. And so when the price of beef goes up, my stock's worth more. When the price of beef goes down, my stock would be worth less. Now, that's a very simplistic way of explaining it, but it'll work for the situation. So I go out and I buy my stock. And then I got my brisket over here. Now, the price of beef goes up. What happens? I got to pay more for my brisket. But remember, I got my beef stock over here. And the price of beef goes up. Now my stock's worth more. So now I can use the gains that I made on the stocks that I bought to offset the losses that I incurred from my brisket prices going up. And so that's how I'm going to try. We'll see if it works. But if you you get it wrong, you can sometimes still be okay. Because let's just say that the price of brisket went down and my stock went down. Now I lose the money on the stocks, but I make the money on the brisket. And so that's what's called hedging. You're hedging your bets. Speculating is if I didn't need, let's say I didn't need to buy briskets, but I saw the beef prices were going to go up. So I went and bought the beef stock and I sit there and I wait and I watch it. And when it goes up, I sell the beef stock and I make my money. Hedging is when you actually need the product. So you're betting on price fluctuations to offset your costs because you know you're going to need something. Southwest Airlines did this beautifully. In the, I think, late 90s, early 2000s, 
whenever they saw the, the price of oil getting ready to go up, and they thought to themselves, okay, we use a lot of jet fuel. We're going to need to buy it in the future. I see that prices are about to go up. So they went and they bought the stock of oil, basically, and they made money on that because they prices of fuel went up. And so the money that they made on the price going up, they used it to offset their cost on the fuel, which allowed them to compete way cheaper than, than all their competition. And so big companies do this all the time. It's nothing new. Typically, you're going to see this in a larger environment than, than my little old barbecue stand. But it's fun to me, and I kind of like to gamble a little bit, and I need brisket, and I see an opportunity, so I'm going to do it. And I'll report back. I may get my ass handed to me. I don't know. But I'm going to give it a whirl. And I'll, uh, I'll report back. All right. One more trick. And then I'm going to wrap it up. So earlier I said, if you realize what you don't know, and you realize there's people around you who do know things, you can use that to your advantage and you can learn things. And I say all that to say this. I am done engaging or talking to, or having a conversation with people about their dogs if they're wearing a harness. I'm just, I'm just done. I'm done. And I've ranted before about it, but dogs in harnesses is partly what's wrong with America. That and putting dogs in strollers. See, you p- people go out there and they buy these harnesses for their dogs. And they think, well, he pulls. He pulls, so I put the harness on because he pulls. Yeah, he pulls because you didn't teach him not to pull. Of course he's going to pull. Harnesses make pulling comfortable. So this stems from yesterday. I was at the brewery, and there was people there. And they had one lab on a harness, and they had a little Border Collie. He was on a harness, and Border Collie was laying down. He was just looking around. I, want, I wanted to go pet him. So I walked over there, and I just slowly approached. You know, I know how to approach a dog to kind of read it. And the girl immediately yanks back on the harness. The dog's going nuts, barking at me, scared, terrified. Its tail's between its legs. And I step back and I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's going on here? I said, let, let, let the tension off the leash. And she's like, no, no, it's okay. He's fine. He's fine. We're just, we're socializing. And, you know, these people, they see these videos, they hear these keywords, and they know nothing of which they speak. And the guy's like, yeah, no, he, we're fine. We're, we're not going to let him interact. It's, it's okay. He'll be fine. And I was like, look, guys, I, I know quite a bit about dogs. I've been training dogs my whole life. If you let the tension off the leash, he'll decide whether or not to approach me. He's very fearful right now. He's scared. He wants to get away. And he feels like he can't get away because you've got a bunch of tension on the leash. So he thinks he's stuck in a position where he can't run away. And they're like, no, no, it's, it's fine. No, really, it's okay. And I go, are you guys working with a behaviorist or a, a trainer, anyone to help you? And the girl pipes up, no, we're just, we're, we're just easing into it. He's a COVID baby. And that's when I, ding, the light bulb went off. And I thought, you know what? I'm done. I'm done going up to dogs in harnesses and petting them because the types of people who put their dogs in harnesses are the types of people who think they know everything about dogs. And they don't understand that there's people walking around out there who know quite a bit more than they do. If they were smart, they could sense that. And they could say, you know what, well, maybe this guy does know. Let me ask you some questions. But see, they get told by people who don't know what they're talking about. Things like, oh, don't let anyone approach him, especially men. He's scared of men. And that's what they said. Oh, he's, he's scared of men. <laughs> 
I just think, you know how many times I've heard this? You know how many times I've heard this? And, and what happens is these people are causing their dogs to be fearful because they don't know what to do to fix it. And I've realized that because I don't have dog trainer tattooed on my forehead, they just think that they know more than I do. And, and it's not worth it. You know, all I wanted to do was help the people. I just wanted to help them. But you can lead a horse to water, but you can't drown him. You can only hope he drinks. If you have a dog in a harness, I'm sorry, but I don't care. I'm not, I'm not going to deal with it. It's an indicator. You know what it is? It's like people who still wearing the mask. People who still got the mask on their face. It's an indicator to me. Now, you might speculate on what that's indicating, and you'd probably be right. Let's just say something along the lines of an IQ test. And it really does. It really does blow my mind that people are still wearing face diapers. You know, it's, um, it's telling. It's telling of our society. It's telling of our intelligence. It's telling of our desire to actually trust the science that these people are still wearing masks. And I have to remind myself, Brandon, there is a spectrum of people. There are people who are really, 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 really smart. And there are people who are really, 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 really not smart. And everyone falls somewhere in that spectrum. And and that's what I have to remind myself. And I, hey, listen, I'm on the dumb side, probably. I mean, I could barely work an iPhone. So I don't claim to be the really, really, really smart ones. But I do claim to not be the really, 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 really not smart ones. And with that, I shall put a bow on this podcast and wrap it up. 54 minutes long. So kind of a marathon. I hope I didn't bore you with my rants. I'm glad you tuned in to Life in Paradise podcast. I encourage everyone to go out there this week, work hard, do good things, be friendly, disagree without being disagreeable, speak your mind, don't shelter your opinion, communicate with people in a way that makes them respect you. Most of all, keep it tranquilo. Keep it tranquilo.